This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. The finance minister has a plan to pay for Canada's pandemic spending, and that plan includes raising GST and HST money from digital purchases that have been ducking taxes. If necessary, Canada will act unilaterally to apply a tax on large multinational digital corporations so that they pay their fair share just like any other company operating in Canada. Digital tax policy has emerged as a major issue around the world. In Canada, the term Netflix tax has been part of the political lexicon for years, alternately referencing sales taxes, mandated contributions to support Canadian content, or a special tech tax on revenues, sometimes called the Digital Services Tax or DST. Late last year, the Canadian government announced plans to act on all three fronts. Bill C-10 seeks to address mandated CanCon payments, and Finance Minister Krista Freeland has promised digital sales taxes by July and what sounds like a DST in 2022. What is a DST and how might Canada's digital tax plans play out on the international front? Soon after the government's announcement, I spoke with Georgetown University professor Itai Greenberg, a leading expert on cross-border taxation and digital tax issues. He joins me on the podcast to talk about the long-standing approach to multinational tax policy and the emerging challenges that come from the digital economy. Itai, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's a pleasure to um, be on this great podcast that you do all the time. Okay, well, it's great to have you. There are not that many digital tax policy experts out there, and you are one of them, so I'm really grateful that you've taken the time to join me. You know, digital tax policies emerged as a major issue, certainly in recent years, and in Canada, it's something that's been much talked about, actually, for quite a number of years. The term Netflix tax has been part of the political lexicon for some time. Sometimes it's taken to refer to a sales tax, sometimes mandated contributions to support Canadian content, and sometimes a special tech tax on revenues that some call a digital services tax or DST. For a while, the Canadian government said they simply weren't going to go there, but Recently, just before the end of last year, they changed their mind and said sales taxes would be forthcoming in July 2021 and what sounds like a DST a year later in 2022. I wanted to focus a bit on the DST and its implications, but why don't we start in a sense at the beginning? Why or I guess how has has digital tax policy emerged as a major issue? Yeah, it's it's a great and 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 complicated question that's connected to the architecture of the international tax system writ large. The foundations of the system we have globally date to the 1920s. And at that time, the view was that a multinational business couldn't have enough of a link to a jurisdiction to have an obligation to pay income tax there unless it had a physical presence in that jurisdiction in one form or another. And of course, if you think about the state of technology in the 1920s, that was a pretty reasonable view. Um, And that view was built into a League of Nations model tax treaty and has been built into the architecture of the now approximately 4,000 bilateral tax treaties that underpin the international tax system ever since. Uh, But then 
after the financial crisis, there was a global recognition that lots of multinationals were earning what was um, labeled as uh, stateless income, meaning income that was being booked in jurisdictions that were neither the country where most of the relevant economic activity um, took place, nor the country where the end customer or the user was, nor the country where the corporation was ultimately headquartered. Um, and of course, when that happens, it's um, intentional and the jurisdiction is almost always low tax. So something called the BEPS project was launched in 2013 at the OECD with G20 support. And when the BEPS project began, digital was a special focus because it was thought to be an important case of stateless income. And in fact, at the time, large US firms based in Silicon Valley were achieving very low rates of tax on their foreign earnings. But as people got into the project, they saw lots of loopholes to close down and also a recognition dawned on all the delegates to all the countries that it was kind of impossible to, as they said, ring fence the digital economy and treat it differently from other sectors. Why? Because the entire economy was, and of course still is digitalizing. But the rhetoric around stateless income could still unify everyone. And the idea of leveling the playing field made sense to lots of parties. So there was a project that closed loopholes and did not have any special rules for the digital economy and even had a declaration ex uh, to exactly the, 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 the effect I just talked about. You can't ring fence the digital economy because the whole economy is digitalizing. But the basic compromise built into the overall package implicitly took the then existing state of US um, corporate income tax law and international tax law um, uh, into account and uh, sort of figured that was the foundation. Then something no one outside the US actually thought would happen, happened in 2017. The US reformed its corporate income tax law and its international tax laws. And a Republican Congress enacted a global minimum tax for US multinationals that was largely inspired by the structure of an Obama administration proposal, but enacted at substantially lower rates. So the US enacted a reform under which intangible driven US parented multinationals now never have an effective tax rate on their foreign earnings that's below 10 and a half percent. So suddenly stateless income was only a phenomena about non-US headquartered multinationals. And what that also did was unveil something that had been hidden by the stateless income rhetoric that all countries could subscribe to, which was that sovereigns other than the United States and China were not just interested in a level playing field between companies that do a lot of things digitally and all other companies, they wanted a revenue shift away from the country of headquarters or the country where the IP was created and towards the country um, uh, where the user was or the customer was when it came to the largest tech companies. So that's how we got here. That's a pretty great history lesson. Thanks for that. You know, that that where we are now, that here, is that we do see a lot of countries, and as I mentioned, Canada is one of them, talking specifically about finding some mechanism to get what they would argue is their fair share based on the revenue that's generated within the country, whether it's Canada, France, Australia, whatever the country happens to be. And they talk about it in the context of this DST. How might that function and how would it differ from, I suppose, more conventional tax measures? Right. So DSTs are gross basis taxes. That means they're on revenue, not on income. And they're narrowly defined um, generally to apply only to social media platforms, online search engines, and online marketplaces. Slightly different definitions in different countries. Uh, some DSTs um, um, outside Europe 
have expanded in scope a little beyond, but almost all enacted or proposed DSTs are limited to companies with a global, so not a national revenue threshold above a high number, say a billion US dollars. It's the combination of the narrow definition of the type of business covered by the tax and the establishment of a global revenue threshold um, that produces a tax that is perceived to overwhelmingly hit US headquartered tech companies. Um, it differs from conventional tax measures in that it is not an income tax. It's not about net income, it's about revenue. Um, and um, it is a return to a kind of tax that existed before the invention of the, of the value added tax, the VAT, which is called the GST in Canada, and um, which the goods and services tax replaced because turnover taxes created a series of economic distortions that the VAT avoids. Unlike a VAT, a turnover tax imposed exclusively or almost exclusively on um, foreign multinationals acts a lot like a tariff. VAT doesn't do that. A DST does. Okay, as someone who has to send his taxes to be to sent out to an accountant uh, to be done, why don't we unpack this just a little more? I think what, uh, what, what I'm hearing is there we, we used to have these kinds of taxes, but by by placing taxes specifically on revenues, it had kind of had that sort of tariff-like effect. It was viewed as better to implement value-added taxes, sales taxes, uh, which would, were viewed as more efficient and wouldn't have that effect. But this this seems like a, a reversion back to that earlier approach. Right. So so the thing about the value-added tax that's amazing is like if you import, if any, if any business imports something into Canada, they pay the value-added tax at the border. But then when they sell that to an individual in Canada, the individual pays sales tax, GST, and then the business claims a credit for the amount of value-added tax it imported. The tax is only assessed once. In contrast, turnover taxes cascade. They, can, they keep multiplying depending on the number of different parties that um, engage in the transaction. And so they have a different economic character that produces some inefficiencies that uh, became recognized really like in the sort of second half, or at least early part of the second half of the 20th century. And that's kind of how the move from turnover taxes to GST happened in almost every major developed economy, except the United States, of course. We right. don't have that yet. No, I know, I know that you don't, but uh, we do in Canada and you go to many places and there's some form of either GST or VAT. It would seem it's, it's certainly not uncommon. So that, that highlights, I guess, some of the risks, that cascading effect. Uh, what are some of the alternatives that, that you would see if for a country that says, listen, we look at these companies generating significant revenues doing very well within the country, but we, we feel not contributing fairly to our tax revenue base. I think the alternative is the one the world is actively pursuing. And that really does take into account the correct observation from the BEPS project that the entire economy is digitalizing. And so it's not possible to ring fence the digital economy but that's also sensitive to the idea that there are certain businesses earning um, you know, really, really high returns that are generated by um, primarily by intangibles. And that's um, uh, a, a workable, although um, you know, very ambitious um, tax reform of the international tax architecture writ large. Um, for the last two years, the G20 has sponsored a project at the OECD in which the world's norms regarding 
two things are being discussed really for the first time in 100 years in a serious way. The first is the degree of international coordination that's appropriate in taxing multinational enterprises as between sovereigns. And the second is the appropriate allocation of taxing rights as among sovereigns. And again, that discussion just hasn't happened since it happened at the League of Nations in the 1920s. And so we have a, a sense, we, we when we hear about the discussions at the OECD, it's, it's always often, there's discussions taking place over there. Um, and they're having trouble reaching a consensus and, and, and on and on. Can you give us some insight into what, what is actually being discussed? What are some of the proposals that are at play and where do uh, some of the various countries stand on these different uh, potential outcomes? Right. So, I mean, uh, in terms of the uh, proposals, uh, what we have is what is called a two-pillar process. Um, Pillar one is about a, at the highest level, reallocation of some amount of taxing right over residual income or excess income. So income above some normal level of profit away from the place it's usually in historically been allocated, which is either the country of headquarters or the country where the IP was created or the country where the economic activities took place to market jurisdictions, meaning either jurisdictions of the customer or um, the jurisdiction where the user is. And then pillar two is about having a global um, minimum tax on the foreign earnings of, um, of multinationals. So when they earn cross-border income, there's um, some minimum level of tax that they um, must pay. And those are the two ideas. And then there's kind of a third piece, which is if you try to uh, rewrite the rules of the international tax system in this way, you also have to think about um, dispute issues and dispute resolution, and one may need different mechanisms than one needed in the past. And so that's kind of a, a third prong of the discussion. Okay. And where, where do the various countries stand on, on some of these different proposals? The, the, the word that you see in various press reports is, is that at the moment there, there simply isn't consensus. But, but you know, how, how does this divvy up, I suppose, amongst the, the major, major countries? Well, I mean, maybe it's easy to talk, easier to talk first about, um, you know, Basically, everyone says that they support an agreement at the OECD through the G20 process. The question is just which agreement do they support, right? <laughs> it's not that anyone says, well, we're just opposed to this process. Everyone thinks that a multilateral settlement would be better or says that they do. Um, then, you know, it is interesting to think about um, what position all countries come to the, dis the, the, the discussion from. And there it's useful to kind of frame it back in, in light of DSTs, just because that's one of the motivators for the discussion, right? So DSTs are now in force in France and Italy and the UK and India, Mexico and Turkey have enacted taxes that I would call DST plus taxes. Um, and the EU's proposed a DST and there are other proposals in at least half a dozen countries around the world um, including Canada now, as you point out, but also including places like Kenya. So it's pretty broadly distributed. Um, uh, all that said, I, I would still say the biggest proponents of, of a sort of, of a digital tax, a tax that's only on digital companies, remain the originators. So France and the UK and the European Commission. 
even they describe that as a temporary measure. In other words, even the biggest proponents say they think the tax isn't great and should be repealed if there's a global settlement at the, at, at the OECD. But uh, their, their sense of what would be an acceptable alternative is obviously one thing, and other countries' sense of what would be an acceptable alternative is probably another, or maybe another. Um, during the Trump administration, the United States has been the biggest opponent of DSTs, although China also has expressed opposition. And um, you know, one would note that um, uh, both of those those two countries are probably the, the, the two most important headquarters companies for for large digital technology companies in the world. Um, there's a need to resolve an endless set of issues then that um, that that around I me mean, not endless uh, a significant set of issues that arise right because then there's sort of like the 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 third question of well how do you handle um, developing countries whose interests um, may be different than the interests of say Europe. So Europe wants to see um, a reallocation of taxing rights with respect to digital companies or seems to because they're the proponents of the DSTs. Turns out that places like India have wanted a reallocation of taxing rights generally for a really long time. Um, um, the uh, emerging market economies position is basically like, look, we weren't there um, at the at those meetings in the 1920s at the League of Nations, we, we weren't there. And we actually think that our, our markets should get um, a bigger allocation of the taxing rights. And so uh, there are um, numerous interests with countries coming at things from different positions. Okay, I mean, it's interesting. It'd be interesting to be part of, to, to kind of see that in action with such a diversity of perspectives. You know, we've talked about it from the perspective of countries. Where do the companies stand on this you know when when issues like sales tax have come up for example companies like netflix or facebook or whomever uh, have responded at least in canada that they'll do whatever the government requires them to do they're not going to do more but they'll do exactly what the government requires them where do they they stand on this i mean I mean, the perception would be that that minimum taxes would result in a net loss for those companies and that they would be opposed. I mean, is is that is it as simple as that or do tax treaties begin to kick in and payment of one form of tax then has the ability to offset some of the other taxes they might pay? And there the impact is perhaps perhaps less pronounced. So I, feel, I mean, I feel a little uncomfortable saying, you know, what it is that the tech companies um you know where they really where where they actually stand, since I obviously can't speak for any of them. Um, but I guess the easiest thing to say is, look, these companies are unsurprisingly opposed to DSTs, and um, they separately um, have been really quite willing to pay sales taxes and VATs because they just recognize that's just a necessary thing to do, and the world just has to adapt to imposing. Um, you know, VAT or GST on uh, the businesses that um, don't necessarily have physical presence in the jurisdiction. Uh, when it comes to pillar one, I think that, uh, so the, the the allocation question, I think that um, most um, big tech companies have basically said that they prefer a solution at the OECD to, to the DSTs. And when they say that, they seem to suggest that that um, also um, encompasses an agreement on pillar two because they're talking about an overall OECD deal. Okay, so they're like like the countries who also say that their preferred approach is some sort of consensus deal. Your sense is that that's the preferred approach from from industry as well, as opposed to having to deal with a multiplicity of approaches from different countries. Right. Although I would so 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 I, I get yes, absolutely. 
recognizing that from the perspective of any stakeholder, whether it be a country or um, uh, a corporation, saying that one wants a multilateral agreement is different from then being confronted with specific detail, right? And that's where the rubber hits the road, of course. Yeah, no, of course. You know, the, part of the challenge, it, it seems, in terms of reaching that deal is this, this feels a bit zero sum. Um, if you, if you, if someone's paying more, more tax in Canada or in France, they may be paying less in, in say the United States or in China, if tax treaties have that offsetting capabilities, is that in fact the case or is, do, do these tax treaties have less implications if there is some form of consensus that's reached? Well, I mean, the story that the OECD has told for um, some time is that we need consensus to create certainty and stability in the system and that otherwise we risk a digital tax and trade war. And uh, the OECD has an economic analysis out that suggests that in the worst case where no consensus is reached, that tax and trade ward reduces global GDP by 1%. So it stops being zero sum in that framing, in part because consensus prevents bad things from happening. Interesting. You've talked about those bad things from happening. Why don't we talk a, a little bit about what happens in the absence of an agreement? And so as, as, as we know, Canada has decided it's going to move ahead until there is an agreement. They're no longer prepared to wait, which represents a pretty significant shift from where they were. You you outlined a whole series of countries that have already moved forward. Perhaps France, I think, is probably the best known to a lot of people. Can you describe what took place with France and then the response that came from the United States, perhaps providing a bit of an advanced preview what could happen to other countries that that decide they're going to push ahead? Right. So um, I can certainly talk about what's happened between the U.S. and France. I'd be hesitant to describe it as a preview, though, since the decisions made with respect to the French DST were made by the Trump administration, and, and a new administration is coming into office in the United States. Um, so you know you can't uh, you, you can't draw a straight line, uh, but you obviously recognize that the United States remains the United States, and with France, what happened was that the United States um, trade representative opened an investigation into whether the French DST was discriminatory and, un and unduly burdensome on US companies. And um, after a long process and with a really big report, they found um, that it in fact was um, discriminatory in that way. And they subsequently imposed retaliatory tariffs or well they, they they at first said they would impose impalatory tariffs and then they took six months to think about what they would be um and those tariffs are scheduled to go into effect on uh, january 6th of this year or of 2021 sorry right okay so so and, and i recall that delay in terms of where those tariffs are my recollection is that country can choose to target in a sense or may may decide to target whatever whatever products or services they see fit and so are going to try to in a sense exact as much economic pain on another country to dissuade them from moving forward if that's what they so choose so you'd want to go after sensitive sectors as opposed to necessarily tit for tat when it comes let's say to tech for tech kind of thing oh yeah no the the, the i i believe a bunch of the tariffs are on like things like luxury goods and cheeses 
Right. So it's very much the kind of the kinds of products France would be known for. You 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 mentioned just now that uh, a change of administration could change things. Can you can you expand a, a little bit on that? You know, there's obviously it's going to change a lot of things. At least I think a lot of people are hoping it changes a lot of things. But on this specific issue, um, you know, to the extent to which this means we're talking about more or less revenue for the United States, how much of a change of administration changes that that part of the kind of economic nationalism, or at least the desire for countries to maximize the amount of tax revenue they're able to get? So, I mean, uh, I think on the, you know, on the big question, on the TST issue, uh, specifically, I think we'll just have to see. I would point out that the, the, the Trump administration um, strategy put out a, 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 a regulation, uh, proposed regulation that suggests that um, DSTs are not um, in the technical parlance um, creditable taxes for U.S. income tax purposes, which changes the n- nature of the sort of calculation um, with respect to the U.S. FISC as you think about um, uh, DSTs, if that regulation um, is, is, is finalized, or at least clarifies, I shouldn't say change, clarifies the, 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 the state of play there. Um, and certainly one should observe that the Biden-Harris administration is uh, generally committed to cooling down the temperature on economic disputes with historic allies and partners, right? So that that we know, President-elect Biden himself wrote in Foreign Affairs back in March that, you know, Trump has designated, and now I'm quoting, Trump has designated imports from the United States' closest allies from Canada to the European Union as national security threats in order to impose damaging and reckless tariffs. By cutting us off from the economic clout of our partners, Trump has kneecapped our country's capacity to take on the real economic threat. And that was a reference to China. Um, So now to be clear, that quote's about national security threats, which is a reference to Section 232 actions um, by the United States Trade Representative, which is actually different than the DST issue, which proceeds as a US legal matter under Section 301 of the Trade Act. But the the point is that I think at least um, the tone of the discourse won't be the same as it was in the Trump administration. I I feel good about that. Um, What the actual outcome is, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it it may well be that the Canadian government decided that that change administration opened the door to moving forward with the proposal that it's just done because the the response might not have been... um, as as strong as it was, say, under the Trump administration, given what you've just described. Uh, why don't we wrap up with, a, I guess, a projection? Nobody knows, of course, what the future may hold. But uh, given that the the temperature associated with this issue, cont- this issue continues to rise, we're seeing more and more countries say that they, they want to see some kind of resolution. We're seeing many countries led by Europe, but uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand are all part of this as well, uh, believing, I think, that there's... Uh, political advantage to taking on the tech companies, that there's little risk in doing so, even when it comes to some of these tax policy issues. Where do you see this coming out in, in, over the next couple of years? I mean, you know, I think that there is tons of uncertainty, but I think either we have a path towards a multilateral agreement on the allocation and minimum tax issues that underlie pillar one and pillar two, or we have um, a significantly growing number of unilateral actions taken by sovereigns and potentially a bigger mess to try to clean up later in the international tax arena multilaterally. Uh, what I think, uh, you know, um, people who are not close 
to the subject matter um, don't recognize is that, or may not recognize, is that the international tax system is an important um, undergirding for, um, you know, globalization and free trade, and that uh, it's been remarkably stable and remarkably effective for a long time. And now we're entering a period where we don't have a status quo, and you can't be as sure about that. And there, there may be consequences to that. So there, there's lots of reasons for everyone to come to the table and try to reach um, agreement multilaterally um, in uh, you know, a spirit of, of, of goodwill and compromise. But whether that'll happen, we'll see. I guess we, we, I guess we will see. I mean, I think that's that's a that's a great way to to leave it to highlight just how important some of these issues have been beyond just the tax revenue they generate that they really provide part of the foundation for for the for the global trading system. And given how important technology and technology companies have been as part of that, uh, surely there's, there's clearly this is this issue certainly isn't going away. And there'll be a, I think an ongoing desire to come up with some kind of approach that leaves everybody, if not wholly satisfied, uh, feeling that the the compromise is reasonable enough. Itai, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's really been a pleasure. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.